Good to be with you guys. My name's Kevin Twitt. I've been here before, but if you don't know me, I uh, work uh, in the same denomination that City Church is part of, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and I work with students at Belmont University in a ministry we call RUF, Reform University Fellowship, and these are some of my students, which is so nice, and always nice to see alums and old friends. Wendy, my wife, up here, and I were part of City Church from the beginning for, what, about the first eight years or so, um, and it's always great to be back. Um, we're going to look today at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Ricky and myself love this book. And um, David actually may even preach a series on this one day. It's a great way to actually understand the purpose of the Old Testament. Um, but today we're really going to consider the issue of faith. What is faith and what difference does it make, especially in the here and now? And uh, I remember when I became an actual Christian, um, in high school, probably around ninth grade, 10th grade, I remember one of the very first verses I was taught to memorize was Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And I was taught to memorize it as, quote, the definition of faith. And for a long time, I held that that was a pretty good definition of faith. I've come to realize that that actually isn't all that the Bible has to say about faith. And even the way I was taught to understand it is maybe actually not the most helpful way to understand the issue of faith. Now, what I'm getting at is the, the translation you'll see in front of you, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This is a difficult verse to translate. As you may know, or maybe you don't know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so when we have our translations, people have to kind of wrestle with, how is the best way to translate this? And there are some words that can have several different kind of shades of meaning, and you have to look at the context as well as the way those words are used in the first century to try to reckon with the best translation. This verse has always been a challenge, and most of our English translations translate it in a way that make you think that faith is a feeling. But the word in the Greek actually is not a subjective feeling word. It actually is a word that refers to a title deed. And if any of you all know uh, what a title deed is, in other words, if you own a house, you understand that that title deed and who holds it and whether it's actually valid is a really big deal. And it changes even, I would say, the way you experience life in your house, whether you're renting or whether you're living there. And if you've got renters, you understand they don't really appreciate the keeping the house clean and nice and, and all that sort of thing, right? It matters who holds the title deed. So this is a, a, a wrestling that has happened, I think, for many years. And I've come to understand, particularly as I've preached through Hebrews numerous times, that the context leading up to chapter 11 really helps you understand and settle the issue that this is not talking about a mere feeling. Now, this, here's the challenge, you see. In the Bible, you will run into certain words that are also used in the culture. And even in Christian circles, words which sometimes mean something different, maybe sometimes very different, in some cases slightly different than the way the Bible means them. And I would suggest that this word faith is one of those. I think for a lot of people in our culture today, maybe that don't even go to church, they think of faith as like something that goes where you can't understand things, then faith comes into play. That it's basically something that the uneducated need, or it's a feeling, maybe it's a certain temperament 
that religious people have. They just seem to be able to always look on the sunny side of life. I think that's generally how people think of faith, as like a kind of optimistic temperament. And I think a lot of people in the church see it similarly. Think about when people use the phrase, walking by faith. I wonder what they mean by that. I, I, you know, I've lived in Nashville many, many, many years, and one of the things that you'll experience if you live here for a while is meeting people who feel like God told them to move to Nashville. And then they get here, and things are more difficult than they thought they would be. And sometimes you want to ask, well, how do you know? And, and usually it reduces down to, well, I just kind of had this feeling. And now they're wondering, not only how am I going to get through the difficulty that living here is that I didn't expect, but can I actually hear God and know what faith is? Uh, which I think is, you know, sort of built upon maybe this misunderstanding of what does it mean to walk by faith. What Hebrews 11 shows us, and we're going to read it here in just a second, is that living by faith means the objective reality that Jesus has lived and died in our place as our high priest transforms reality. One of the Bible commentators who's written about this says, faith takes possession by anticipation. It brings the future promise of God into the now and defines reality for us. And that's based on the fact that Hebrews 7 through 10 is the longest explanation of the priesthood of Jesus. What does it mean that we have a true priest who intercedes before God, who opens a way for us to have intimate fellowship with him? And as Hebrews 11 shows, that reality, that title deed that we celebrate, that we know is ours, changes how we live, not just in the future, but in the here and now. So with that as an introduction, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to stand, that's the custom here, to stand for the reading of God's word. Follow along. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah 
herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or whole. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray. Lord, we do pray that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but the preaching. Now, help us to understand what faith is and what a difference it makes. Even through the preaching of your word, the foolishness of preaching, may you work faith in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said... This is um, a passage that speaks about faith. But as you, as you see here, the common theme is not that faith is this feeling, that all of these people had a certain feeling. What's celebrated is the way the future is what drives the way they live in the present. I love that we sang, for instance, how firm a foundation, because that really is one of the most critical things to understand, do, do the promises of God function as reality for us? 
Do the promises of God define reality? That's what Hebrews is talking about. And Hebrews is written to people who are wavering in their faith. Persecution has begun, and it's only going to get worse. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a church in Rome, a small church most likely, who are considering turning back from being Christians and turning back to being just merely regarded as Jewish because their safety in turning back from Christ and returning to Judaism. In the Roman law, that was a protected religion in a way that Christianity wasn't. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, no, you actually need to understand that even all of your quote-unquote heroes of the faith understood that trusting God means the future promise controls reality, not our present circumstances. Um, the way Bill Lane, some, a commentator, Bible scholar, some of us knew, Rick, we knew him, Katie uh, Bowser, some of us knew him back in the day before he passed. He's got a, a, his translation is very helpful. Here's the way he translates verse 1. He says, faith celebrates the objective reality of the things or the events for which we hope, the demonstration of events as yet unseen. On this account, the men of the past received attestation by God. The key to this definition, and I, the reason that it's so important to see this, is that faith celebrates or lives in response or in light of this objective reality, as I said, that title deed. Faith brings the future, which has been secured by Christ, into the now. And that's how you need to see Hebrews 11 coming after chapters 7 through 10, which are all about the work that Jesus has done as the high priest. He really did live. He really did die. He really did offer up a sacrifice that now gives us the opportunity to enter boldly into the throne, to be welcomed into God's embrace, to have intimate fellowship with him. What Jesus has done is not just sort of relegated to what happens when we die. I think that's one of the great mistakes many Christians make. We think of as faith or a relationship with Jesus as primarily being about what happens when we die. We get out of hell free if we trust in Jesus. But Hebrews talks about, no, the, the faith is for now. The, what Jesus has done gives us incredible blessings and access into the very presence of God. And, and, and faith, that faith is faith in the promise of God based upon the reliability of his word, but it's also based on what Jesus has done. You see, here's the thing. All of these people that Hebrews talks about lived before Jesus. So like them, we have God's promise of the future. We live in light of God's promise of the future. But unlike them, we live farther along the unveiling of this future. So we not only look to the future, which God has promised, but we look back at what Jesus has done. We have an extra ability, an extra um, thing to rely on, and that's what Hebrews is talking about here. Faith sees the priesthood of Jesus as the event that gives perspective on all of life. You see, it's not a leap in the dark. It's not a leap in the dark. I think sometimes 
Christians and people who are trying to figure out Christianity both get confused at this point. Faith is not closing your eyes to reality. I would argue, actually, faith is opening your eyes to seeing more, not less. It sees the reality. Faith doesn't shut our eyes to the reality of the brokenness and the difficulties of this life, but it sees more. It sees the reality of God's promise that there will one day be no more tears. He himself will wipe them away. And faith sees that Jesus really has lived and died and even now is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is Hebrews chapter 1. And makes intercession, prays for us even now. Even now. Faith is not just a leap in the dark. Hebrews 11 is not a baseless emotional appeal to just believe and persevere and stick it out. But that's what happens, I think, when we consider it just to be a feeling, the assurance. It's not that. It's based on the reality of what is described there in chapters 7 through 10. See, faith knows things because it takes God's word. That's true. You see that in verse 3. It says, by faith we understand that God created the world. Faith actually is not opposed to understanding. It is a way of seeing more than what we just see with our eyes. But of course, faith is not a plant that is native to the soil of the human heart. This confidence does not just come from nowhere, and it's not something we just kind of wump up. Faith, like I say, takes possession by anticipation. Faith says about this future that God has promised, it's mine, but this confidence is a gift of pure grace. And it's something that is nurtured. It's one of the reasons we gather every week, because to live by faith, in other words, to live based on the objective reality of what God has done and what God has promised, is to live against the grain of the world we live in and against the grain of our own hearts. And it takes a community to help us live against the grain. And it takes real food and drink to nurture us. And it takes singing songs that get deep into our heart and remind us of what we know to be true. It takes a community to help us, and that's what we have here. Faith changes everything. Let me just spend a few minutes talking about how faith changes the way we read the Old Testament. You see, the point of the Old Testament stories is not to lift up the heroes of the Bible as mere examples for us to emulate. As a matter of fact, if you dig into all these stories, some of these folks have a lot of things you wouldn't want to emulate. Maybe you know about David and Bathsheba. You don't want to emulate that. But also Jephthah, you know, he's one of the odd ones that you're like, why is Jephthah in here? This is the guy that after he won this great victory, he made a very rash, foolish vow that he would sacrifice whatever came out of his house, whoever came out of his house, thinking it would probably be one of his animals because the animals kind of lived in the house too. Instead, it's his daughter. And the text is a little ambiguous. Did he actually sacrifice her? Did he just condemn her to never be able to be married and then cut off his line? All it says in the Hebrew Old Testament is that he did to her as he vowed. So that wasn't actually a commendable thing. One of my professors, Dr. Collins, who David Richter had as well, you say he really should have repented of making a foolish vow. So not everything these people did was worth emulating. That's true about everybody in the Old Testament. 
The, the Old Testament is not just holding up good examples that you should try to live like. What is particularly focused on here is the way the future define their reality. And, and, and look at this, a couple of the examples of this, right? Faith, it says that Abraham made his home in the promised land. God had promised, promised certain things to Abraham. The place that later would be given to God's people as an inheritance, when Abraham was a stranger, it says in verse 9, he, was, he made his home there, even though he was a stranger. We are the ones, of course, Matthew chapter 5, the meek who will inherit the earth. We're now living in what will one day be the new heavens and the new earth. We're actually living right now in the literal promised land. This is why Peter says to the early Christians and to all of us that we should live our lives here as um, in reverent fear as strangers here. I love that phrase. You think, how are we then to live as in reverent fear as strangers here? But knowing that this is where our home will be one day when the new heavens and the new earth come down. We don't feel that we quite fit in though, right? But that's not because we're crazy. That maybe actually is when we're the most sane, when it feels like we don't quite fit in. And yet, because of what God has promised, we know we are called to be here, to put down roots, to work, as the exiles were told in Jeremiah, for the shalom, for the peace of the city to which God has called us. We're called to live in this strange land, Hebrew says, keeping our hope alive for the city we've been made for. Look at verse 13. I think this is a real challenge. It says they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. I think that's where the rub often is for me. I think it's one of the most difficult things to reckon with the fact that we really are strangers and aliens on earth, meaning the earth in its present frustrated condition. This is not saying that one day you'll escape off into blissful, like, unbodied existence on a cloud someday. It's saying we don't quite fit in here. Alan Noble, um, I think I mentioned the last time I preached here how he came and did RUF staff training um, over Christmas, and he talked about basically the modern world is inhospitable for actual human beings. And yet it's so difficult for us to realize or to even admit that. We think that all we need to do is try a little harder, be a little more clever, make a little more money, you know, work a little harder, find a different group of friends, whatever. We just think a little tweak and we'll finally find the peace and the happiness that we long for. It's hard to admit that the problem is much worse than that. But that's what the Bible tells us. And I wonder... Where and when do you find it difficult to admit you are a stranger and an alien? You see, Hebrews considers this actually vital for persevering in trials because it helps you remember that frustration is to be expected if you actually are an alien and a stranger here. But faith knows that God's promise defines reality, not present comfort. Verse 17 through 23 talk about this. It's the reason that Joseph wanted to be buried in the promised land. It's why Moses' parents defied Pharaoh and hid their son rather than having him be killed. And another important thing about faith. 
Faith knows that God's promise means we don't need to rely on this life for all of our joy. You see, it's because Moses saw more than the Egyptians saw that he was free to forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin and wealth. I was thinking about this, this about two weeks ago. I, actually, we took a group of students to London uh, for a mission trip to uh, work with five churches planted in areas where they're mostly folks from South Asia. So people from Sikh background, Hindu background, Muslim background. And it's a really sobering experience to be among people who have converted from those backgrounds. It really, you really see where the rubber meets the road. See, it's possible in many ways in America to become a Christian and still not embrace the full reality of what that means as far as becoming a social outcast. But in those places, those believers all have testimonies about what it costs them. And it's intense. And it's a sobering wake-up call. Do we live for the joy we can get out of this life? Or are we able to say, I can turn my back even on family to follow Jesus if that's what it takes? Because he has promised to give us more brothers, more sisters, more mothers, more fathers. That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? But how will you be able to do that? Only if the objective reality of what Jesus has suffered and your security and faith in the promise of God drives the way you live today. You know, I, I follow various accounts on Twitter, some that have, you know, deconstructed from the faith that they've held to for a long time. And I find regularly people describing trust and reliance on God's word as a fairly modern innovation, particularly the idea of inerrancy, the idea that the Bible can be trusted, that it is reliable, that it's without error. And I just think it's so fascinating. Christians have always held that God's word can be trusted. I was on a panel uh, a couple years ago at Belmont uh, for chapel, and it was basically like four of us, a couple professors, um, one grad student, and then me. I think I was the token evangelical. Actually, I'm sure I was. Um, and, you know, which is kind of funny because some people think I'm the biggest liberal in the PCA, and I'm like, you should come live where I live and, and kind of hang out with with some of the folks that have very different ideas. But I remember one of the questions was asked, what do you think about words like inerrancy and infallibility? Um, you know, and I was like, do you believe those things? I say, yes, I know those words aren't in the Bible, but those concepts certainly are. When the Bible says that it's purer than gold refined seven times, that's the Bible's way of saying this is without error. And when I, when I read that the Bible says it's a lamp unto our feet, a sure guide, that's saying it's infallible, it's a safe guide. This is not like a modern invention post-enlightenment. Oh, I know ways of describing what we believe about Scripture can be described in ways that go beyond Scripture, and I do believe some people have done that with things like inerrancy and infallibility. But the Bible, the fact that the Bible can be trusted is long been held by Christians. I saw this quote recently, and I thought, yes, people need to know this. This is Augustine. So Augustine, 4th century, late 4th century, early 5th century, says this, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture, 
Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Don't let anybody tell you that that's a modern invention. The trust in the Bible is bedrock for what it means to be a Christian. Oh, that doesn't mean that if you don't believe that, that you can't be saved. But as Martin Luther said, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And it's important that you understand what the Bible teaches about itself if you would seek to live by faith. Because Hebrews says the promise of God, that is the words God has said, are absolutely vital. They are bedrock for our faith, not just for the future, but for how we live now. Well, notice this one last thing. Faith wins great victories and suffers great persecutions. Just fascinating there in verse 35, 36, 37, 38. The shift from all these victories to suffering is so smooth. And I think this is, uh, points out another misunderstanding. A lot of people think if I'm really living by faith, then that means everything will go well. But the people who live by faith, some of them get sawn in two. That's most likely a reference to a tradition about the prophet Isaiah. It said that he was put inside a hollow log and sawn in two. That sounds fun, doesn't it? But that is just as much living by faith as people who received their loved ones back from the dead. So faith should never be confused with life going the way you want it. Mm. Well, concluding application, we come to the Lord's table. What is your faith in? What is your faith in? Is it God's coming through for you in the way and according to the timetable you define? Or is it based on God's work in Christ? The answer to this will tell a lot about your ability to withstand trials. Faith trusts God's definition. And I guess the last question is, where do you get this faith? Well, as I said, it's a supernatural gift of God. Ask him for it. Ask him for it. How does it come? It comes by hearing the word of God by prayer, by seeing the word of God preached in a picture through the sacraments. I love um, this old Moravian missionary, Peter Bowler. One time, John Wesley, who was a preacher, a priest, but not yet a Christian, but came to believe that he didn't understand faith. And he asked Peter Bowler how he would get faith. And you know what Peter Bowler said? He said, preach faith until you find it. It's fascinating. What he meant was, Trust it. Try it on and see if God might start to melt your heart. We're glad that you're here. If you're one who's like, yes, I'm a Christian, but I struggle with faith, good. We're glad you're here. And this sacrament is for people with weak faith. If you're one who's here saying, I'm not sure what I think about all this Christianity stuff, we're so glad you're here. Rather than staying at a distance, we're so glad that you've come near, that you can actually be able to hear and see the word of God, and we pray that the Spirit would work faith in the hearts of all of us who are here, not only through the preaching, but even now as we come to the sacrament. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you care that we would trust you and believe your word, and you give us so many things to help us. Not least, of course, is your Spirit. So we pray even now as we come to this table that you would work faith in our hearts. Give us faith in the objective reality of what you have done, 
through Jesus and what you have promised to do. It is not a vain hope. Oh, give us the security and the assurance of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.